If you have a Bible, Philippians 2 is our passage. There's some notes in the bulletin. You can track along with the main ideas this morning. We're reading the New Testament together this year as a church. We've made it through roughly the book of Philippians. Some of you were here. Many of you were here in 2017. We preached through the book of Philippians beginning to end. This last Wednesday night, we looked at a passage from Philippians chapter 1. So I know that some of you are serving in Awana. Some of you are working on Wednesday nights, but you can catch up uh, online with that message, Philippians 1. Our passage this morning is Philippians 2, 12 to 18. And we've really got to connect it with 2, 1 to 11. And before we try to do all that, I just want to say a few things about the book of Philippians and Paul's relationship with the church in Philippi. So Philippians is part of a group of books, group of letters that Paul wrote to churches and one to an individual that Bible scholars call prison epistles. So this is Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon all lumped together in this category of prison epistle. And they're called prison epistles because Paul was in prison when he wrote these letters. There's a little bit of debate about this, but most Bible scholars seem to think it was when Paul was in Rome. You can read about that at the end of Acts chapter 28. Paul was in Rome. He was under house arrest. He was awaiting his trial before Caesar, and he fired off these letters that we call Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Just to fill in some of the dots for you on Paul's life, eventually Paul was released from that Roman imprisonment. Things went in his favor. He continued to travel. We don't read about those travels in the New Testament, but church history and old tradition tells us that he continued to travel around the Roman Empire, preaching the gospel, planting churches. Some traditions say he made it all the way out west to Spain, He talked about his desire in some places to travel out to Spain. Eventually, Paul was arrested again. And this time, things did not end well. He was placed in the Mamertine prison in Rome. And tradition tells us that in the year roughly 64 AD, Paul was executed by the Roman emperor Nero. But before you get to the end of Paul's life, what you see is a man who traveled all over the ancient world. He preached the gospel to many, many different people. He planted many, many different churches. And it may be accurate to say that the church in Philippi was his most favorite church. It was certainly one of his favorites, and it may be not an exaggeration to say that it was absolutely his favorite church. He loved the church In Philippi. And you can go back in the book of Acts, chapter 16. You can read about how Paul and Silas and Timothy met a woman named Lydia at a prayer meeting out by a river. They shared the gospel with her, and God opened her heart to pay attention to the things that Paul was saying. Lydia and all of her household became followers of Jesus. You can read an amazing story about how Paul delivered a slave girl who was possessed by a demon being used by her owners. Then he was thrown into prison, and you can read another amazing story about how Paul and Silas shared the gospel with the Philippian jailer and saw him and his entire household baptized. Paul loved this church. In fact, if you look over at Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, we talked about this Wednesday night, Paul says that he yearned to be with them. He loved these people. 
He wanted to be with these people. He had invested in them. He cared about them. And he loved this church. When you read the book of Philippians, there is almost no rebuke. Paul isn't mad that they've chased after a false gospel. He's not upset that the things are going crazy in the church like they were going in Corinth. He just writes to these people. He says, I love you. I miss you. I wish I could be with you. And I want you to just keep going exactly the way that you're going. So, we talked about Philippians 1, Wednesday night. This morning our passage is Philippians 2. Let me say a quick word about Philippians 2, 1 to 11. It is a call to Christian humility rooted in gospel truth about the incarnation and the atonement. So these verses are some of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible in describing who Jesus is and what he accomplished on our behalf. Who is he? He is God who took the form of a servant. What did he accomplish? Well, he died a sacrificial death, and not just any death, but death on a cross. And he's now been highly exalted to the throne of the universe. And someday, a day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And in talking about who Jesus is and what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, what Paul is actually calling the church to is humility, to count other people more significant than yourself. Why would he do that? Because that's what Jesus did for us. He counted others more significant than himself. He laid down his life that we might have life. And Paul says, you and the church ought to do the exact same thing for each other. Some people read this passage, Philippians 2, 1 to 11, and they read about what Jesus has done and who he is, and they think this sounds like, when you read it in Greek, it sounds like an ancient hymn. It sounds like a song that they would have sang in church together, gathered as the people of God, celebrating the truth about Jesus. So that brings us to our passage, Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Here's the big idea. Very simple. Christians are expected to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have called on the name of Jesus for salvation, the expectation for you going forward is that you are intentional about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's straight out of Philippians chapter 2. Now, let's talk about fear and trembling. School is back. We had students leading us this morning. Just a show of hand for elementary students and middle school students and high school students. Have any of you had a test already? You've already had to take a test. That is wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. If you didn't raise your hand, you are running out of time. We're several weeks in. Tests are coming. Students take all sorts of tests when they're in school. They take language arts tests, reading tests, math tests, science tests, social studies tests, all sorts of tests. If you have made it all the way through school and you are a grown person, odds are at one point in your schooling, you had to take a test on the nine parts of speech. Okay, I'm going to put them up on the screen. We'll see if they ring a bell to you. The nine parts of speech. Articles, nouns, pronouns, 
adjectives, verbs, adverbs, conjunctions, interjections, prepositions. Any of you remember learning these when you were in school? Some of you might be taking a test this week. The nine parts of speech. If you're going to speak intelligibly, you have to know how language works. You have to know the nine different parts of speech. In this particular passage, Paul does something interesting. He takes a verb. Verbs are action words. And he takes a preposition. Prepositions are words that describe the relationship between two other words in the sentence. And this is very common in Greek. We don't do it a lot in English, but it's very common in Greek. He mashes those two words together. He takes a verb and a preposition, and he mashes them into one single word. And the word is this. We'll put it up on the screen. Katergerdzamai, which means work out. Work out. If the first thing that pops into your mind is bench press, take that out of your mind. We're not talking about lifting weights. We're not talking about cardio day. You're off the hook. Some of you are like, I thought we were going to have to start an exercise regimen. No, we're not talking about exercise. We're talking about your walk with the Lord, your relationship with the Lord. And Paul says in this passage to believers, to people who have put their faith in who Jesus is and what He's accomplished, God is calling you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's interesting that when Paul mashed this verb and this preposition together, he does not call this church to work for their salvation. He does not call this church to work up to their salvation. He does not call the church in Philippi to work towards their salvation. He says, I want you to work out your salvation. So prepositions are these little words that describe the relationship between two things. And some of you may have seen an example like this. We'll put the birdhouses up on the screen. Prepositions describe the relationship between two words. So we would say the bird is on the birdhouse. On is the preposition. The bird is Above the birdhouse, between the birdhouses, behind, near, far, in front of, beside. The bird is the same. The birdhouse is the same. But the change in the preposition changes the meaning of the sentence. Prepositions are little bitty tiny words, but they pack a lot of punch. And you can't just pull one preposition out and put another one in and expect the meaning to be the same. It's not the same if I tell you, Emmanuel, you need to work for your salvation. That would be to make the mistake of the Judaizers. We saw that in Galatians. It would be wrong for me to say, you need to work up to your salvation. That would be man-made religion. Man working his or her way up to God. But what Philippians 2 says is that God actually came down to save us. Jesus took the form of a servant to save us. The prepositions matter. And what Paul is calling this church to and what the Bible is calling you to if you are a Christian is to work out your salvation. Not for it. Not up to it. Not towards it. To work it out with fear and trembling. So we'll start with this question. How should we think about this? How do we think about this command, and it is a command, to work out our salvation 
with fear and trembling. Two simple thoughts. The first is this. We can't work out anything that God hasn't worked into our lives. In other words, first God has to work salvation in us, and then we have the ability to work it out. But if God doesn't first work salvation in our lives, we have nothing to work with. This is clear from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. God begins the work of salvation in our lives. That was Lydia at the prayer meeting in Philippi. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. That was the jailer while he listened to Paul and Silas sing hymns all night long. And then when a moment of crisis came, he said, what do I need to do to be saved? God was working in his heart, opening his heart to the truth of the gospel. God begins the work of salvation, and Paul says, he's the one that will bring it to completion. It's not even up to you ultimately to bring your salvation to completion. God begins that work, and he will complete that work. That's the point of Philippians 2, 1 to 11. It describes what God has done in sending Jesus to take the form of a servant, to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that we might be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life. So number one, we can't work out anything that God hasn't worked into our lives. Secondly, working out our salvation is our humble response to God's grace. Anything we do in this category of working out our salvation is only a humble response to God's grace in our lives. Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, here's the command, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You read that, if it stopped right there, and there wasn't a verse 13, it ended with verse 12, you may say, aha, that's my peace. Philippians 1.6, God starts it. Philippians 1.6, God completes it. But this is where I come in. I come in in the middle and I am to work out my salvation. So yes, God's involved in the past. And yes, God's going to be involved in the future. But right now in the present, it is up to me to pull myself up by my spiritual bootstraps and get my act together and work out my salvation. Except that's not where Paul stops. Verse 12 isn't the end of the paragraph. In verse 13, he says, For... You're going to work it out, but you're going to understand that it's really God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's God who initiates the work. It's God who is at work in you to will and to work in the present. And it's God who will bring that work of salvation to completion. It's the grace of God in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. And yet, Paul gives a command and he says, you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let me tell you a story that may help you make sense of this. About a year ago, our younger kids came home from school and they asked for money. Can we have some money? I said, what do you need the money for? 
And they said, at school, we're going to have a store. And in the store, we can buy Christmas presents for our parents and our siblings and our friends. By the way, you have right at about 100 days to get your Christmas shopping done. So the clock is ticking. So they came home and they said, we would like you, you understand the situation, we would like you to give us money so that we can go to the store at school and buy you a present. This is wonderful. How much do you need? 20 bucks? 40 bucks? What do you, what do you need? So we sent them with money. We gave them the money. They went to the store. They bought us lovely gifts. I am now the proud owner, I use it once a week, of a Dallas Cowboys cup. It's beautiful. We're going to win the Super Bowl this year. I'm going to drink out of that cup on Super Bowl Sunday. It's going to be great. My wife received a trophy, trophy, and the plaque on the trophy says, World's Best Mom. I guess they were out of the dad trophies. I don't know. I got the Cowboys Cup. She got World's Best Mom. Now, you understand the situation. Can we have some money? Yes, you can have some money. Go to the store, buy a present, then they come home with the present wrapped, and they give us the present that they bought with our money. Okay? Let me tell you how this works as a parent. You know if you're a parent or a grandparent. We did not open those gifts and say, well, this is nice. Those gifts meant something to us. They were real gifts. Of all the things that could have been bought, a Dallas Cowboy. I like the Dallas Cowboys. Didn't buy me a Texas Tech cup. I know, grown, right? Bought me a Dallas Cowboys cup. World's best mom. Not second place mom. World's best mom. Those were real gifts. And yet they were bought with our money. And they were real gifts. And they were bought with our money. You understand both of those things are true. All of that is true. And you understand that's what Paul is saying here in Philippians 2. Any response that you and I make to God's grace is just that. It is a response. Who begins the work of salvation in somebody's life? The good work of salvation. Well, Philippians 1.6 says God begins it. Certainly what happened with Lydia, it's clear from Acts 16, God started that work. Who brings that work to completion? Well, it's not us. Paul says in Philippians 1.6 that God's going to bring it to completion. What happens in the middle there? Well, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but we understand that it's God who's working in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. All of that is true at the same time. We are not robots that God reaches down and just flicks a switch on and off. The responses we make are real. They're genuine responses. And if you this morning have never made a response to God, today ought to be the day when you do that. The day when you repent of your sin. The day when you believe the good news about Jesus. The day when you commit your life to follow Jesus as a disciple. If you've never made that response, we pray you would make it today. And if you make it today, we understand 
God is the one who started a work in you. God is going to be working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And God's the one who's going to bring this work to completion on the day of of Jesus Christ. It's God's grace at the beginning, in the middle, in the end. And our response at the same time is a genuine response. Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I think a good parallel passage to Philippians 2 is Ephesians 2. And I'm just going to put it on the screen. If your Bible's open, you could flip over just a few pages to the left. Notice as we read Ephesians 2, what Paul has to say about our condition as sinful people, how bad it is. Notice that Paul, when we get to verse 4, is going to say that God starts a good work in us. God is the, the difference. He takes the initiative. Notice that Paul is going to talk about God's grace, and he's going to talk about our faith. God's grace beginning, middle, end, and our faith is a genuine response. And notice at the end, Paul has something to say about the role of good works in our life. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him. And He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. We talked in Philippians 2 that Christ has been exalted. We've been raised with Him. Verse 8, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's take this one step further. We've talked about how we should think about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let's answer this question. What does it actually look like when a Christian works out his or her salvation with fear and trembling? I think Paul gives us four pictures of what this looks like. You understand as we talk about these four truths, these four comparisons that Paul makes, this is not an exhaustive list. It's not everything that we could say about what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it is representative of what Paul says in the rest of this passage. So what does it look like when a Christian works out their salvation with fear and trembling? Number one, it looks like gratitude instead of entitlement. Gratitude instead of entitlement. At the risk of great redundancy, please look at Philippians 2.12, the word, therefore. That word is really important. It connects our passage to the passage before it, and it connects it in a special way. It connects it in the way that what Paul says beginning in verse 12 
is predicated on, it's rooted in, it's grounded on what Paul says in the previous passage. And what he says in the previous passage is you need to know who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on your behalf. Why do we need to know that, Paul? Philippians 2, verse 3, because he doesn't want us to do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, he wants us to count others more significant than ourselves. Verse 4, he wants us to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interest of others. Verse 5, he wants us to have the same mind amongst ourselves that Christ had. Humility. And he wants us to look at what Christ has done on our behalf, and he wants us to be grateful, not entitled. I don't know if you know this or not, but you live in a time and a place where people have major issues with entitlement. It's all over the place. Entitlement. Morally, people think that they are entitled to live in any way that they want to live without facing any of the natural consequences for their decisions. People think they are entitled to that. Relationally, people think today that they are entitled to invent any sort of relational arrangement that they might dream up And not only to have it allowed, but also for you to celebrate it. I think they're entitled to that. Technologically, people think they are entitled to the newest model of iPhone. Or Samsung. Or streaming service. Or cable package. Or whatever it is. We live in a time and a place where people think they are entitled to these technological things. Economically, there's a growing idea that people are not only to be given equal opportunity, but they are to be guaranteed equal outcome. People are entitled to that, we're told. Academically, people think that they are entitled to an A on every test simply because they have a pulse, simply because they paid tuition. Entitlement. Everywhere you look. And guess what? It's also present in the spiritual realm. People think that they are entitled to have access to a deity who will do whatever they want Him to do whenever they need Him to do it. The Bible says spiritually you are entitled to something and it's death. The wages of sin is death. The consequence for your sin is death. The thing that you and I are entitled to in light of the fact that we are sinful people is instant and eternal death. Anything that you and I receive other than that is a gift for which we ought to be thankful. And certainly when you read about what the Lord Jesus Christ did in humbling Himself and becoming a servant and dying on a cross, our lives should be marked by gratitude rather than entitlement. Secondly, what does it look like when we work work out our salvation with fear and trembling? It looks like rejoicing instead of grumbling. 
rejoicing instead of grumbling. Many of you, were, when you were children, had to memorize Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's a good verse for parents to ask their children to memorize, as long as the parents learn the verse also. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. You understand that doesn't mean that you have to look at injustice and say nothing. It doesn't mean that you have to look at wickedness and say nothing. It doesn't mean that you have to look at uh, evil and say nothing. It does mean that the way that you think and the way that you speak should not be marked by grumbling and an argumentative spirit. Rather, it should be marked by rejoicing. We've talked about parts of speech this morning. I love the word that Paul uses here for what we translate grumbling. It's the Greek word gongusmos. Gongusmos. It's an onomatopoeia, which are words that sound like what they mean. So this word gongusmos means grumbling, and it sounds like gongusmos. Gongusmos, gongusmos, gongusmos. Just sounds like you're grumbling, muttering under your breath, sighing, grouchy, angry, gongusmos, gongusmos. This is the word that the Apostle Paul uses when he writes to the Corinthians and he talks about the people of Israel who left Egypt and they went out into the wilderness and they grumbled. Gongusmos. That should not be the marker of your life. It should not be the marker of your speech. Rather, your heart and your speech should be marked by rejoicing. We talked about that word in 2017 when we worked through this book. Paul uses that word over and over and over and over again in Philippians. Some 16 times in 104 verses, he talks about rejoicing, rejoicing. It literally means worship with joy. Not grumbling, not a tendency to argue with everything and everyone, but worship with joy. In verse 17, he says, I rejoice with you. I worship with joy with you. In verse 18, he says, you should be glad and rejoice with me. We should worship together and we should worship with joy. Rejoicing, not grumbling. Number three, godliness instead of worldliness. Godliness instead of worldliness. Look at verse 15. Paul says he wants them to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The Bible never pulls its punches when it talks about the condition of human beings as sinful people. Paul says the people you live among are crooked, they're twisted, and you, in the midst of that, are to shine like a light. You are to be pure and blameless. You are to be above reproach. He's not expecting them to be perfect, but when you make the comparison between the world and a follower of Jesus, Paul's saying it ought to be obvious. It ought to be so obvious like you're in a dark room and somebody turns on a flashlight. And you can see it, and it's clear, and it illuminates the darkness, and it gives direction to the people who are in the darkness. That's what your lives ought to be like, Paul says. This is an amazing thought. You can really take some time to chase this out through the New Testament and think on this. Let me just show you two verses quickly. 
Jesus in John 8 said, I am the light of the world. It's one of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus trying to help his followers understand who he is. We see it in John 1, the light entered the darkness, and he says it at a feast in John 8, I am the light of the world. But I also want you to note that at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus looked at his followers and he said, you are the light of the world. Both of those are true. Jesus is the light that entered the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. John 1, John 8. But Christian people are people who, over time, begin to look more and more and more and more like Jesus. They don't look like the crooked, twisted generation that surrounds them. They look like a light shining in the darkness. One last note. What does it look like when we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? It looks like endurance instead of indifference. Endurance instead of indifference. How many people do you know, won't ask for a show of hands, won't ask for a number out loud, but how many people do you know who at some point in their life have made a spiritual decision about Jesus? They've prayed a prayer, they've walked an aisle, they raised their hand, They've made some sort of spiritual response to Jesus. And then as you have watched their life through the years, it's obvious that they are living with complete and total indifference to the Word of God, to the person of Jesus Christ, and to this call, this command to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I know people like that, and you know people like that. Paul is very clear in this passage that working out your salvation with fear and trembling does not look like a life of indifference to the things of God and the things of the gospel. Rather, it looks like endurance. Look what he says in verse 16. He wants them to hold fast to the word of life. Because Paul doesn't want to look up someday and realize that he ran in vain or he labored in vain. Verse 17, Paul says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. It's a Jewish ceremonial way of saying, I'm on the tail end of life here. I'm dying. And it won't be long. But I'm going to endure to the end. I'm going to hold fast to the word of life to the end, and he wants the Philippians to do the exact same thing. It reminds me of what Paul says to the church in Corinth. I'll just put a few verses up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. You received it. You responded to it. You raised your hand. You prayed a prayer. You walked an aisle. You received it. In which you stand and by which you're being saved, if, here's the same phrase, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. In both of these passages, Paul is saying there is a way to make a spiritual response toward God, a spiritual response about Jesus that includes doing the right thing in the moment, but then going on and not holding fast to the truth of the Scriptures. Paul says these people have believed in vain. These people are not being saved simply because they made a response 
And the call for the Corinthians and the call for the Philippians and the call for the people at Emmanuel is very, very simple. My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Let's pray together.